I mean, there was cat shit all over the walls. I mean, <laughs> the smell was unbelievable. I mean, the filth and the smell and everything. And I just fell in love. And I said to her, this is the most beautiful house I have ever seen. And she did this little pirouette in the middle of the hall. And she said, yes, and all it needs is a coat of paint. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Dark House. I'm your host, Hadley Mendelson. And I'm your other host, Alyssa Fiorentino. And today we have a special bonus episode for you. We were able to speak with Sally Quinn, the former owner of Grey Gardens, who bought the property from Little Edie in 1979 and only recently sold it a couple of years ago. So if you listened to last week's episode about Grey Gardens, then you probably remember her as the woman who started the religion blog for Washington Post and also was a reporter there, as well as a writer who has published a few books. And if you haven't listened to last week's episode yet, go do that first, because you're going to want to hear all of the stories about the property to be able to follow along with this week's episode. So with that, I hope you enjoy our conversation with her. Here she is. Thank you for joining us on Dark House today. Welcome. Thank you. I personally have been wanting to talk to you since I read your memoir, Finding Magic, which I found as I was researching Grey Gardens. And also, quick shout out that we are all cancers here, which I learned in your book. Oh, really? Yeah. (laughs) So we'll see how that impacts the mood here. And I've also told all of our listeners who you are and a little bit about your background, including your career trajectory as a journalist, and then also a little bit about how you grew up in Savannah in a home that you felt was likely haunted and your experiences with magic and the occult. Do you like the word occult or how do you feel about that word? It's fine with me. Some people might call it a religion. Mm -hmm. It is a belief um, in things that you can't explain. So it's a fine word. Yeah, I think so too. For some reason, I think some people find it to be a bit stigmatized or stigmatizing, but maybe we can change that. When I wrote in my book, the the ghost stories and all of that about the hexes and everything, no one could believe that I wrote this because I'm a journalist and, you know, write for the Washington Post. And was I some kind of a kook? (laughs) (laughs) But the fact is that I grew up with this in Savannah in a small town in Statesboro, Georgia, which was haunted. And I spent my summers there. And so it's, it's all part of my religious education, really, and my spiritual education. It always baffles me when people who are of another faith will sort of say, oh, well, you know, that person's a kook. So I think every religion has a certain set of beliefs that often other people don't understand or think they're a little out there. I don't know what I would call my religion, I guess magic, but there are just so many things that are inexplicable in this universe. And I think the occult things that are inexplainable are very much uh, a part of my life and, and a part of all of our lives. Definitely. It's interesting when you look to at the root of the word occult and then cult and how we see certain things as cults, but others as legitimate religions and all of it does come down to sort of perspective and what our understanding of what is mainstream and acceptable as a belief system is, I think. So speaking about magic, could you define what you think it is? 
first of all, there's good magic and bad magic, black magic or whatever you want to call it. But I, I mean, I do think that people are susceptible to their beliefs so that if they believe that somebody has special magical qualities, then it might work. If you put a hex on somebody, for instance, and you say to somebody, I put a hex on you, and if they don't believe it, they get to laugh it off. But if they do believe it, they might actually get sick or something bad might happen to them. I mean, that could be psychological. I do believe that people wish others ill, and I don't know whether that works or not. Look at how many people pray every time there's a mass shooting. People pray. Does that work? Does it do any good? And who are you praying to? And what are you praying for? Does it make any difference? You can talk about prayer as magic. I think that when I say magical, for instance, I like to go to Greece in the summer. And Greece, I find, is magical. Absolutely the most beautiful place. It lifts me up in a way that no other place does. When I get in the water in Greece, that I feel like I'm completely embraced. I, I feel that anything is possible. And I think that some people have magical qualities. I mean, there are some people who really are magical. We, I used to call my mother. I used to say she had the magic. My mother would walk into a room and everybody loved her. I had a friend, Hodden Carter, who used to come over and he'd wear his plaid drinking pants. And you knew that if Hodding walked in the door with his plaid drinking pants on, you know you're going to have a fabulous time. And Hodding was a magical person. My husband, Ben Bradley, was a magical person. When he walked into a room, he just made everybody feel good about themselves. And that's a form of magic. I, I like to entertain, and I like to have small dinner parties. And I just think it creates an atmosphere. But there's something also a little spiritual about it. And I, I call my dinner table the sacred table because I think that when you put people around a table who are fun and interesting and smart and you have a lot of candles and you have good food, it can be Popeye's fried chicken, you know, and, and a lot of wine and just have great conversation. I had a dinner a few months ago, and somebody wrote me afterwards and said that he left the dinner party feeling enhanced and ennobled. For me, that's magic. There's something spiritual that happens at a dinner party when people get together and they bond in some way. Mm -hmm. There are just lots of different kinds. You know, what could be more magical than having a baby? I don't think I've ever done anything more magical than breastfeed Quinn for six months. And I would just stare in his eyes, and he would stare in my eyes, and I was just enchanted. Mm -hmm. Wow. I definitely think part of it has to do with connection with others. When you were talking about Greece, that felt more solitary, but it still is about this wholeness or oneness with some sort of spiritual thing outside of yourself that makes mm -hmm. you tethered to more than just your own little, you know, voice in your head. I also want to say that I think sex is magical. And if you're having sex with somebody you're really in love with, there can be nothing more extraordinary than that and, and a magical feeling that you get from that, mm -hmm. of that kind of intimacy and that kind of connection. Yeah. One of the connections that I'm noticing too with all the examples you give is that there's a bit of a lightness after each mm -hmm. of these moments, mm -hmm. which sounds like something worth striving for. I want to move into a few questions about Grey Gardens. So I was telling Alyssa all about both Big Edie and Little Edie, and I wanted to focus a lot on their background too, because I felt like that was important to kind of give the whole picture of who they were as women. They just sounded just so one of a kind, but 
I wanted to hear from you, since you actually got to meet little Edie, what she was like. She was wonderful. I mean, she was, you know, it was, it was tragic and funny at the same time. The house was literally falling down. I mean, the back of the house was unhinged and was flapping in the wind. There were raccoons all over the house. She had something like 36 cats. There was no furniture downstairs, except in the living room there was a piano. And the floor of the living room was sort of sunken. And I went to the piano, I went tink, 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 and the whole piano just collapsed. Um, the porch, the was glass porch, was completely shattered, but covered with vines, so you couldn't even see outside. And you didn't know whether... She said there was a walled garden, but there was no way to tell because it was so covered with vines. But when I told the real estate agent that I wanted to go see the house, she said, okay, but you're on your own because I'm not going in there. So I said, I don't care. I went, I walked in the door. Edie was standing on the front porch waiting. She had a sweater wrapped around her waist as a skirt. And I think the scarf is probably because of the fleece. I mean, I never saw her head. Hmm. And she had huge masses of red lipstick sort of smeared around her face. Wow. So she sort of said, you know, welcome to Grey Gardens. It was though it was some <laughs> fabulous palace, which I walked in and I just looked at this house and I thought, this is perfect. I mean, there was cat shit all over the walls. I mean, you know, I mean <laughs> the smell was unbelievable. I mean, the filth and the smell and everything. And I just fell in love and I said to her, this is the most beautiful house I have ever seen. And she did this little pirouette in the middle of the hall and she said, yes, and all it needs is a coat of paint. <laughs> oh yeah, well, hundreds of thousands of dollars later. <laughs> but the fact was that she saw it the way I saw it, which the way it once was. Mm -hmm. And so I went around, she showed me around, and um, I'm not allergic to cats, thank God, but I mean, they were crawling all over the place and raccoon skulls everywhere and skeletons. Skulls? Skulls, yeah. On the front porch, there was a raccoon skull. Oh, yay, yay. And it was in the, in the summer, it was in August. Oh. I just was out of my mind. I wanted that house so badly. And a lot of people had seen the house. This was oh, 45 years ago, almost 50 years ago. And they, they had the house on the market for $220,000. We're talking about a piece of property that's now worth about $20 million, right? And mm -hmm. everybody would come in, they'd say, well, buy the house and tear it down. And so she told me this, and I said, why would anybody want to tear this down? It's so beautiful, it's so perfect. And she said, it's yours. Because she had refused to sell it to anybody else because they wanted to tear it down. So I bought the house and I told her that she had a choice. She could leave it broom clean, and that meant everything out of the house, which was already a joke because it wouldn't have been clean, or she could leave all of the furniture and it, anything that was in the house, leave it and I would take care of it. I had no idea what was in the house. So in November, my mother and I went up and it was a blustery day, I mean, really cold and windy and also the leaves had started falling off the vines around the last end porch and so you could actually see that there was a walled garden there but it was very spooky and it was in the afternoon and my mother and I walked in and we locked the front door behind us and we went out on the porch and we were standing there just kind of looking around amazed and all of a sudden 
the hair went up on the back of my neck and I could feel something around me and I turned around. I just had goosebumps and there was this woman standing in the door. I too have goosebumps. I sort of said, who are you? And she said, I'm Lois. And I said, well, what are you doing here? How did you get in? And she said, oh, I don't have any problem getting in. And I said, why are you here? And she said, well, I've come to give you a message from Big Edie. At that point, Big Edie had died, which is why Little Edie was selling the house. And I said, what's the message? And she said, Big Edie wants me to tell you that you are the perfect person to buy this house because she knows that you will restore it back to its original beauty. And she wants you to know that she's going to watch over the restoration and that everything will go perfectly. And you will be in the house by next summer. And then she disappeared. She kind of turned around and walked off, and I, my mother and I were sort of like, what was that? <laughs> well, as it turned out, the architect said, you got to tear it down. I said, I'm not going to. The contractor said, you've got to tear it down. It would be a lot cheaper to tear it down and rebuild it. Mm -hmm. And I said, but then it wouldn't be great gardens, would it? It would just be another house, a copy of another house. So he said, okay, my friends had an intervention with me. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I went home and told Ben, my husband, about it, and he, he wouldn't go in because he was so allergic to cats. He looked at the front door, and he said, you want to buy this house? I said, yes. And he said, you're out of your fucking mind. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm buying it with my book money, and, you know, you can either be part of this or not. One year went by. I talked the architect and the contractor after after we had had all these incredible discussions, into doing the house. And Carl Bernstein bet me $100 that we would not be in the house. Nora Ephron, who was my best friend and who was living across the street from me, is the one who said, we can't let you do this. We care too much about you, and this is just going to be a disaster. Everything. Wow. One year later, we were in the house the following August, not only was the construction going faster than they had promised, but it was cheaper than they had promised. So I oh. think that Big Edie was looking out after us. So the house is haunted. There, Interestingly, I've never felt Big Edie's ghost there. Huh. It's haunted by two people. One is Anna Gilman Hill. She's a famous gardener. And she's in the East Hampton Historical Society, and she's written all these books about gardens. And she's the one who had the wall garden design. And this was at the turn of the century, around 1900. And Anna Gilman Hill would just kind of occasionally, you could just feel her kind of wafting around the upstairs. I've never seen her downstairs before. But a lot of people have seen her, because she was wearing a long skirt and sort of a blouse, a gardener's blouse and sort of had a scarf around her neck, very old-fashioned looking. You'd see her floating down the hall, and then one night she walked into our bedroom, and Ben sat up in bed and said, what is, what's that? And I looked up, and then she was standing there, and she just kind of stood in the doorway for a few minutes, and then she just disappeared. My son saw her a number of times. She just was a, a peaceful spirit who liked that I had had the house and turned it back into what it used to be. And the garden, I mean, the garden was spectacular. We had one housekeeper who came out to stay with us and left the next morning because she was so freaked out by the ghost. Wow. And there was another ghost, was a sea captain, who had been a lover of little Edie's, and he didn't want big Edie to know about it, so he'd have 
ladder and put the ladder up against the wall of the house and climb up to her bedroom. And I don't know what happened. I think that he fell off the ladder and was killed, but I'm not sure. But oh. He was clomping around. You could hear him. So in that one yellow room that was little Edie's bedroom, you could hear him at night. You could hear clomping around. One night, Barry Goldwater, who was the senator from Arizona, was staying with us and my parents, because he was a great friend, and I put him in the yellow guest room. And I never said anything to anybody. I never told people that it was haunted. and never told them specifically that the yellow room was haunted because some people just would get too scared. Very often people would come and say, I heard somebody clunking around the room all night. It was really weird, you know? And then I'd say, well, that's, that's because. But the next morning I came downstairs and Barry Goldwater was lying on the sofa in the kitchen. And I said, what are you doing here? He said, oh, there's some goddamn ghost up there in that room and I'm not spending another night there. So I had to put him in another guest room because he wouldn't go back in that room again. I don't blame him. And that's a number of people who stayed in the house. So, I mean, I'm not the only one. Now, did we see ghosts? What can I tell you? All I can tell you is that this happened. I saw this. It was weird. And it's inexplicable. That's all I can say. So people can either believe it or not believe it. Yeah. I'm psychic. And my mother was a little bit. My aunt was very psychic. Yeah, I wanted to actually ask you with, in terms of how you knew when everybody else doubted you, that you could turn Grey Gardens back into its former glory days. Well, I just knew. I mean, you know, I walked in the house. I mean, what would make me say this is the most beautiful house when I've ever seen when it was, you know, a garbage pit? Uh-huh. But I just knew. I mean, there's sometimes that I have those feelings. That house, for 50 years, people would come in and out, and they'd all have the same conclusion, that it was definitely a haunted house. And, you know, I've had that with several other houses that I've owned, those feelings about it. Now, I don't know whether the new owners of Grey Gardens have had any experiences with the ghost. Yeah, I was wondering that, too. I hadn't seen anything, at least in the press, but... No. <laughs> but, you know, they might be afraid that people will think they're crazy, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think some people might talk themselves out of something, even though they know it's happening, if they're too afraid to admit that it's something they can't yeah. explain. Hadley and I also often talk about can people who are more open to, you know, magic and that kind of energy, are they going to be the ones who have experiences and can see ghosts versus if somebody's really closed off, would they just say, this house isn't haunted, I didn't see anything? I do think that there are people who have higher antennas than others. I mean, I know I have a high antenna. I've been to astrologers and psychics and people like that. And the first thing they say is, you're psychic. You know, they don't know me as a tarot card reader. They, they always say, you're psychic. And that man, they read my chart, they say, you're psychic. You know, it's funny, it comes and goes. I'm not always prescient. I don't always know what's going to happen, thank God. But there are just times when suddenly everything that happens, I know is going to, I feel like it's going to happen beforehand, or I'm not surprised. And obviously there's some people who have it and have it stronger than other people. If you had told people... 150 years ago about television or the internet, for God's sakes, they would think you were crazy. How, how are you going to take you and me and the three of us and put us in the same room on a screen? How is that possible? Well, because there's some kind of technological thing that allows that, and we get more and more sophisticated with it every day. 
And I do believe at some point we'll be able to communicate without talking to each other. When people, for instance, people who are um, paralyzed and they can't move anything, and so they've taught them how to think, to concentrate on a machine and tell the machine just by thinking about it to move something or do something so they can actually function without touching the machine, but through the power of their mind. So I think at some point we're all just going to be able, it's going to be a nightmare, you know. Oh, my God, I hate that orange sweater she's wearing, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I like honesty, so. So, No, no, but I mean, how, you know, I'm not sure I'm looking forward to that, but I think that we're not very far away from that and that more and more people will develop a stronger psychic, sense as technology improves and expands because I don't think that there's anything crazy about that Typically, we look at, as a binary, we look at very future-forward technology and AI and all of that kind of sci-fi stuff as polar opposite from this very old-school, religious Mm -hmm. kind of magical occult stuff, but in reality they're not that different I've never thought about it in the context of being psychic, but now I am. And that's an interesting thought. And I do remember in your book, you were talking about how you thought cancers were a bit more in tune with some of these things. I don't know if that's the only contributing factor. I think cancers are much more psychic than other signs. Definitely. Hmm. Well, because I was going to say that the way you described your own experiences feeling psychic resonated very strongly with me. I feel the exact same way where it's claircognizant and it's sort of on and off or maybe even selective it's not all the time but sometimes when I know I just know something and I can't even explain why Um, so I was wondering if our sharing a birthday had anything to do with that July 1st yes yeah Yeah. you know Princess Diana was born on July the 1st yes she was she was we're in good company mine is Harrison Ford that's my only (laughs) similarity I do think we are more sensitive and more psychic all of my friends call me a witch because they know that there are these little moments where I'll just... I mean, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, and his wife was pregnant with their second child. And I said, well, you're going to name him Samuel. He said, what? How did you know that? I mean, you know, you're like three or four months pregnant. That's exactly what we're going to... But how, how could you possibly have known that? I don't know how I knew it. I just said it. You know, it was just one of those things. So that kind of thing happens all the time. My aunt, Maggie, was. she lived in Florida, and there was a, a small plane crash. This is 60, 70 years ago. And um, she woke her husband up, and there was a terrible thunderstorm, lightning, hurricane or something. She said, there's been a plane crash in the Okinoki Swamp. And he said, how do you know? She said, I'm telling you, I know. He said, come on, go back to sleep. She got on the phone, and she called... 911, and she said, there's been a plane crash in the Okefenokee Swamp, and I know where it is. I can tell you where it is. Whoa. And they called her back, and they said, my God, there is a small plane has crashed in the swamp, and she told them where it was. Whoa. That's incredible. Yeah, it's nice to hear about that serving good, too. Yeah, yeah. My Aunt Ruth, who was Scots, Ruth MacDougall, when we were living in the house, this is in Statesboro, and she woke up one morning on the sofa in her living room, and she completely freaked out because she had been dreaming about her mother, and her mother had asked her to come in, to, her mother was dead, come in and sit with her in the 
living room. Now, this is what she told us. She was hysterical the next morning because on the sofa, when she finally went to sleep, she woke up and there was this shawl that her mother had been buried in. Now, did that happen? I don't know. But that's what she thought. In that house, there were all kinds of things that would go on. Wow. This is family lore, and I've had, you know, I've had this in my house that I live in now, and also a house that I, a 1740s manor house that I have in the country, have also had some incredible stories, too. The, the 1740 manor house on the river in St. Mary's was owned by shippers, and the they would go off for a year or two, you know, back to England to bring, take tobacco back and bring whatever they And so sometimes the wives were left alone for a long time, or at least months. And I was sitting on the beach and all of a sudden I heard the screams of this woman and lots of women fussing around her. And she was yelling in pain. And I then realized that she was in childbirth and she was alone. And so all these women were helping her and they were fussing around and they kept saying, it's okay, Priscilla, it's okay, Priscilla. You know, relax, relax. And they talked her through anyway, the baby was finally born. And that Christmas, my father gave me a book about the history of St. Mary's County and the house. And the wife of one of the shippers was named Priscilla. Oh. You know, I had, I had another experience in this house here, which this house was born, built in 1793 in, that I live in in Georgetown. And mm-hmm. I was standing in the front hall. This is after I'd bought it. It was completely empty, and the workmen had been working on it. They'd left for the day. And I was exhausted, and it was in the summer, and I was really hot. And I sort of collapsed up against the wall, and all of a sudden I heard the clatter of horses and this guy came up the house on a horse, and he got off the horse and came up the stairs, and he was dressed in 1790s garb. He was frantic. He was very upset, and he couldn't find his wife. And he said, I don't know what's happened to her, and I love her, and I'm so upset. And I was standing there, and it was watching this happen. He didn't see me. I mean, he didn't appear to see me. And he would brought some sort of a letter, you know, help me find her, help me find her. And... He then left, and I looked up, and at the back porch door was this woman in 1790s garb. I mean, she had on a kerchief and a long skirt and everything, and an apron. And she took one look at me, and she sort of went (gasps) like that and turned around and disappeared. And I have a big backyard and a wall, and she disappeared, and I, I was just stunned. I mean, I... I was shaking. I went home to Ben. I said, I need a really strong drink because here's what's happened. Well, later I learned that somebody had lived in the house, had a situation. There's a Scottish ship owner named Dunlop, Laird, the Lairds and the Dunlop, and that one of the wives had, that had disappeared and apparently was found later. And a couple of days later, I went down, and the oldest house in Washington is on M Street in Georgetown. It's called the Old Stone House. It's a little tiny stone house, and they, it's kind of a museum. They sell things, and then they have a garden and all that. And I was walking past there, and I decided to go in for some reason. I walked in, and there was the woman who had been in the doorway dressed in a costume. And I said, oh, my God, you know, because I had thought she was a ghost. And it turned out, she said, you know, I've always wanted to see that house, and I knew that it would... 
that no one was living there. So I climbed over the wall and went up to the back steps. And there I went. I saw you in the doorway. And I, she said, I went, oh, oh my. I was terrified. Turned around and ran off. That's, That's so hilarious. Funny. That's kind of like when Lois showed up, too. Yeah, Lois, yeah. Is this a real person today? Or? Yeah, but she was there at the same time that guy was. Wow. That's such interesting timing. Alyssa always teases me for using the word liminal a lot, but I find it very interesting that a lot of the stories you've told us are either when you're in like a state of being tired or someone is still asleep or it's at night and it's this sort of in-between spaces where things are less clear. This last story too, I would say, was in between ownership. Like you had just bought it, but the house was still sort of empty and you weren't settled yeah. in yet. So I find yeah. that interesting. Liminal is one of my favorite words. Oh, good. And I, I use it too much also. And I feel that so much of my life is spent in the sort of liminal space. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I live in the now. <laughs> Although sometimes I'm not happy about that. But there's just this whole part of our lives, a part of our space, a part of our psyches. I mean, I believe, for instance, that we all have a soul. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what happens to our, I mean, I think our bodies rot, but I just do because I have felt when people died a number of times when their souls have passed by me and I've felt their souls. And that's mm-hmm. actually happened to me several times. And you can't see it, but it's a force. It's, a, it's an energy mm-hmm. force. My mother, who, Betty McDougall Williams, who was also Scottish and Southern from Savannah, and she had had a number of strokes, was living in a retirement community in an independent living with my father. He was sleeping in one room and she was sleeping in another room with her nurse because she was not able to walk or care for herself. This is here in Washington. And my father got terribly sick. He was 93 and he wanted to die because she'd been that way for 12 years. And he ended up in the hospital and, and I was with him and the doctor said, you can live if you want to. You know, we can make you better, but if you don't want to, you can die. So he decided to die, and he died at 3 o'clock in the morning. I stayed in the room until they came and got him and took him away. And I went home and told Ben, and then I got in bed and I fell asleep. And the next morning I woke up, and I called my mother's nurse, and I said, Bernie, it's Sally. And she said, oh, I know, your father died last night. And I said, how did you know? She said, well, you're Mrs. Quinn woke me up at three o'clock in the morning and she was talking to somebody. And I said, what are you talking, what do you mean? I said, Mrs. Quinn, who are you talking to? And she said, well, I'm, I'm talking to Bill. Can't you see him? He's sitting right here. <laughs> He's sitting right here and he just came by to say goodbye to me. He wanted to say goodbye before he left. Now I've had a number of experiences like that. So in terms of the soul or whatever we call it, the spirit or the energy or whatever we have, I think we all have that. and. I've spent a lot of my life trying to be a good soul. (laughs) I want a good soul. I want to be a good soul. I think I'll never make it totally because I gossip too much. (laughs) (laughs) Now, three things we have in common. I just, God help me, I just got to do it. You know, I'm going to go to my grave trading gossip. In fact, I'm going to have a cell phone in my casket in case I'm not really dead. I can call. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or you need updates on my orange sweater. (laughs) 
I wonder if, I mean, I tell Hadley all the time because we both feel the same way. I'm just like, I am so nosy. Yes, like, I, I want to know everything. Mm. In the military, if you have a top secret clearances, you have the need to know. My father was in the military and he was in the CIA. And I always said, you know, I was born with the need to know. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I have one friend who said, the only way to make Sally crazy is to tell her that you know something and you can't tell her <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, when somebody's like, oh, weakness. I can tell you something, but then they don't answer for we need to more talk. than 60 seconds. Yeah, right. that. This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. Wow. Um, so we've been talking a lot about haunted houses and I have two burning questions. One, were there any really interesting things that you found in Grey Gardens when you were going through the attic to look through all of those things and which ones did you decide to refurbish and how did you incorporate some of the ways that you had imagined Grey Gardens in its heyday into the contemporary design? When that same weekend that my mother and I went up there to close on the house that we met Lois, we went into the maid's room in the back behind the so-called kitchen, and it was piled up to the ceiling, little tiny room separate off the kitchen, piled with antique furniture and stuff. And then we went up to the attic, and the attic was completely piled with antiques and, I mean, beautiful linens and china and wicker furniture and upholstered furniture and lamps and cupids and you've never seen I got so excited I started smoking again <laughs> I had given up smoking I said that my mother and I went out to dinner afterward and we went to this little pizza joint called Sam's and I ordered a drink and I said I've got to have a cigarette <laughs> I was just so ecstatic I had everything refurbished and I furnished the house almost all with I didn't, I, you know, I had to buy some beds, but there were actually some iron beds that I used, some beautiful wrought iron wow. beds that I was able to use. There were all the old bathtubs, the cloth bathtubs that I had restored, and the things that I couldn't restore, then I tried to duplicate. I got these wonderful wrought iron uh, sort of circular staircase that I found in an antique magazine that I ordered. Everything was of the period, and... You know, that when I bought the house, the curtains in the living room, they were still hanging. I mean, they were in shreds. So I took the fabric and I went into New York and I went to a lot of decorating places and found chintzes that looked almost exactly like the, the chintzes that were in the house. And the furniture was all old, not fabulous antiques, but my two favorite things, one of them was a cabinet that little Edie had had and it was filled with all of these little animals it was a glass menagerie and it was like four or five shelves they were in perfect shape I had the cabinet refinished and I found this wonderful little guy in Sag Harbor you know who was the silver guy and then I found the wicker guy and then I found the woodworking guy and the lamp guy and I found every artisan that could restore everything that needed to be restored so I put the 
at the glass menagerie in my little office and just everybody loved it. I, I had to lock it because people always wanted to take the little animals out. <laughs> and the other thing was that there was a wooden crate in the maid's room and it was addressed to Jacqueline Kennedy. Mm. And it had never been opened. And so, you know, it was nailed shut. I mean, we pried it open. And there was a gorgeous mirror, sterling silver mirror, with all kinds of filigree around the edges. And then the mirror was, I mean, odd shape with a beveled glass in the mirror. And it had a sort of a dark sapphire blue underneath the silver and I still have that wow you know it was sad and interestingly the people I bought the house from didn't want anything Hmm. so what did you guys do with that did you have to sell it or did they I had an estate sale wow there are a few things I've kept but mostly small things I just didn't have any place to put them you know why put Mm, it in storage and then what so I might as well have people enjoy it Fun fact, my, I lived with a chair that was in Grey Gardens, though. That's in good hands still. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that. I mean, I wasn't there for the estate sale, but yeah. I started, I guess, at 10 or 11 in the morning. And at 4 o'clock in the morning, people were, it was sleeping bags outside the front of the house. Wow. <laughs> Wild. That's awesome. I, I'd always had this fantasy where that I don't think will come true, unfortunately, where I would redo a bathroom in my parents' old Victorian house in San Francisco and I'd find the diary of whoever once lived here and like understand everything that happened and how their life was and stuff. But it sounds like, though that wasn't what you found, there were lots of objects that could tell an interesting narrative. So that's a really cool experience. I did some, a lot of research on the period. And then, of course, I had all this furniture. And the furniture was actually from different periods. There was some stuff from the... 1920s and then 30s and then 40s. So there was a, an eclectic mix of stuff, which made it more fun, really. Yeah. It was a dream. Sounds amazing. So you sound like someone who's very comfortable in the not knowing of certain inexplicable things, but do you have any theories as to why neither of the Edie's spirits ever surfaced in the home, or at least that you saw? Well, if I had to guess, I would say that they had the most unhappy lives. Big Edie's husband left her. Little Edie wanted to go into New York and be an actress, and she ended up staying with her mother, and they were alone, and they didn't have any money, and the house was falling down around their heads. And my sense is that they just they didn't want to ever go back there. And little Edie, she just never heard from her, never saw her, never heard anything about her. I mean, do I have the answer to that question? No. But you're asking me what I think. Uh, I think it's probably because they just didn't want to go back there. To that point, can I ask, did anybody ever see the captain? Because I'm wondering if his presence was really only felt or experienced as those sounds of hearing him stomp around that room and whatnot. I'm wondering. I never saw the captain. Because I'm curious, was that a residual haunting, whereas the ghost of Anna is actually a ghost because she had a great life right. there and she her spirit would want to right. be there? Versus if you think about the captain, if he actually did, per your theory, fall off that ladder, that's pretty scary. And I would imagine then it's just a residual haunting. Maybe he was looking for little Edie. Right. Yeah, that's true. But, you know, Anna was a happy ghost. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know, had they had mentioned, too, that there had been times throughout your life that... 
astrology or working with an astrologist helped you navigate some tough decisions or just situations. And so I wanted to ask if you find that, you know, living in DC, that a lot of politicians or other journalists tend to look down on astrology. And, you know, if that was your experience, why do you think that is? And if you could just speak more about how astrology has helped you or how it plays into sort of the overall idea of magic as your form of religion and spirituality. Well, I, I still uh, I have an astrologer who I see. In fact, I usually see her around my birthday. And so I talked to her last week just for a tune-up, you know, an update. Progression, as we say in the astrological world. And all I can tell you is that, I mean, when she does my chart, she doesn't say, oh, you're going to meet somebody tall, dark, and handsome, and you're going to have a lot of money, and you're going to take a trip to really she doesn't do that. She is more like a personality study. This is like a, a, a psychological analysis. And, you know, as you grow and change and your life progresses, by the way, a lot of people you wouldn't believe go to astrologers in Washington and psychics. A lot of them. I mean, some of the most famous people you know. I once had a therapist who was absolutely brilliant. And so I had her chart done for her, and she was so blown away by it that she then decided that she wanted to see, have her other clients have their charts done. Because she said, you know, this saves me a lot of time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it really does, because if I know what their chart is, not just what sign, although I do, you know, I do believe that various signs have different, I mean, it, Astrology works so well for me, and it is so helpful for me in understanding myself and understanding other people. I can't believe that there's no truth in it. I'm, I'm a Cancer. We're, okay, we're ruled by the moon. That means that the oceans and the tides are ruled by the moon. It must have some bearing on your own body when there's a full moon. Why, why people are called lunatics, because lunatic means crazy, and it means that you're affected by the moon. And why nurses in maternity wards say more babies are born during full moon. There's so many obvious things that work about it. I think self-knowledge is a good thing. And I understand things about myself because I'm a cancer that I don't like and that I know that I need to work on. And one of them is that I'm too much of a caretaker. I'm too overprotective. Well, my astrologer says that cancers are really Scorpios in housecoats because the cancers can be very tough. The worst thing about cancer, they can be very grasping. And, you know, you get your claw on somebody's toe. <laughs> There's a David Foster Wallace quote where he says, everything I've ever let go of has claw marks on it. Right. That was eye-opening for me to read. Right. So, yeah, I mean, that's it. And I'm, I am... The most tenacious person you can imagine. I mean, I get hold of somebody, and if they're my friend, it's really hard to let it go on either side. Friendship is very important to me, and motherhood. So these are all things about myself that I know, and I need to work on them. I do work on them. I think I'm a lot better than I was before, and I don't know whether you've all ever done the Enneagram or not, but... um, if you do the Enneagram and you get a, a personality, you know, on the chart, the, it's so incredibly close to what your astrological sign is. Right. Really mm-hmm. scary, the description of, of who you are. Yeah. They're both sort of tools for self-knowledge that 
Enneagram and then also horoscopes and your birth chart and everything. My sister and I have the same birthday, but we're three years apart. And we're also both ENFPs on the um, Myers-Briggs sort of personality test. Mm -hmm. But there are some overlaps there that are quite interesting. Mm -hmm. Talking about cancers and everything you just said, Sally, was making me think about how, for me, one huge thing, in addition to friendship being such a big deal, is loyalty to the point where, like, okay, if you hate somebody, I hate them more. You know what I mean? Like, feeling things on behalf of other people. And I get really worked up if somebody were to hurt a friend or a family. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Look out. Look out. <laughs> I feel like I have this innate power to stop whatever it is that they're doing, not even physically, but like energetically, if that makes sense. And so then it reminded me that we had written down a question to ask you about hexes because you, you wrote about them in your mm-hmm. memoir. So I just wanted to, to get your take on hexes and, and your experience there. Now, I don't know what to say about whether I believe in hexes or not, because as I said in the beginning, I, I do think that there is something psychological that's interesting about hexes. If the person that you're putting a hex on believes in hexes, it can actually affect them. And if they don't, it may not have as much of an effect. My mother would ha- put hexes on people, and so did my aunt and my mother's sister and my aunt Ma- uh, Maggie and my aunt Ruth, my, all McDougals. My aunts were all Scottish Presbyterians, so they would go to church. But they would then they practice these sort of voodoo-like things and psychic phenomena and astrology and palm reading. And so I watched them practice voodoo and saw them put hexes on people. And when you're growing up, when you're a child, that's all part of your cultural upbringing. You know, it's part of your spiritual upbringing and your religious upbringing. Is it something you believed in because it seemed to be working, you know, either for good or for bad. But I did write about three hexes that I put on people. And when I did it, I didn't think anything of it because I just thought, well, I'll just put a hex on them and, you know, that'll be it. So I ended up putting a hex on this girl who was flirting with my boyfriend one night. And he sort of dumped me at this party and came onto her and I was really upset. And she was gorgeous. And I put a hex on her. But my intention was for her just to disappear, you know, just move out of town or Mm -hmm. leave us alone or hang out with another crowd or something. And she committed suicide. Mm -hmm. So I was really Mm -hmm. upset by that, really upset, because I felt somewhat responsible for it. Mm -hmm. And then later on, I had an astrologer who... When Quinn was born, she said she was going to give me a birthday present uh, and do his chart for me for free. And she did his chart and basically said he was going to have this horrible life and just went on. I mean, and I, she was mad at me because she had wanted to write a column for the Washington Post and it hadn't worked out and she blamed me for it. It, it just really upset me also because Quinn was so sick. You know, he was had open heart mm-hmm. surgery when he was three months old and he had medical problems until he was 16 and he's learning disabled and everything else. But she also said some things about how he would be crazy and I mean stuff that just was completely over the top. And I know she did it to upset me. So I just stopped seeing her and I just thought that's it I'm gonna put a hex on her and you know and she dropped dead at Christmas 
but it was before that I put a hex on this guy who, from New York Magazine, who was a, an editor, and he had um, done a cover story on New York Magazine of me, and it was the biggest hatchet job you've ever read in your life, and everything in it was not true. I mean, it was so horrible, I've never seen anything like it in my life, and I put a hex on him. Why do you think he did that? Because he wanted to sell magazines. Oh, yeah. He wanted, it was, I was in television, I was up against Barbara Walters, and he wanted to have a cat mm. fight, and it was a bit, it was sell magazines, that's all. Yeah. I mean, he was a friend of mine. He'd been trying to hire me. And then I went to CBS News instead. I put a hex on him, and then he got throat cancer. And lost his job first. Got fired from his job as editor, and then I got throat cancer. So when that happened, I called my brother, who is my brother's a theosophist, and he's also an astrologer. He's also, he's got a PhD in uh, philosophy and religion. And he said, you got to cut this out. And I said, well, I, I didn't mean to kill anybody. I just, you know. And he said, well, I don't know what to tell you about this. I don't know whether you're responsible for this or not. But this is just too scary. And whatever you put out, you're going to get back three times. If you put out some bad energy, it's going to come back at you three times. And so you don't want to take that chance. Sometimes when my book came out, I would talk about this to people, and I'd always get somebody in the audience screaming at me and calling me a murderer and, and also a crazy person. I said, well, well which is it? <laughs> I mean, if you think I'm crazy and you don't believe this, then how can you possibly think that I've killed people, you know? Yeah. Mm. I don't think I did, but on the other hand, I have never, ever, after that third time, I've never put a hex on anybody since then. And I never would. And believe me, you have no idea of how many normal, sane, rational people who think this is all a lot of crap begged me to put a hex on Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah. And I would not do it. I have no way. Because I don't know whether it works or not. I mean, all I know is mm -hmm. that I had the, these three horrible experiences. And I still, I didn't take it seriously. I didn't believe it. But when my brother sat me down and said, you can't do this anymore. Yeah. I really got scared. Yeah. So the answer is, do I believe in it? I don't know. I don't know whether it's true or not. But I do. No one can tell me that, that hexes and spells are not possible or that astrology doesn't work or that, you know, any of this psychic phenomenon doesn't work because it's like calling yourself an agnostic. I don't believe in the word agnostic because... Agnostic means you don't know. Well, let me just put it this way. Basically, we're all agnostics on, on every level because we don't know. Mm. You know, people who are atheists, absolutely. They are atheists or atheists. They are against God. Mm -hmm. They deny the existence of God. Well, how can you do that? Mm. I don't know whether there's a God or not. Uh, I certainly wouldn't, you know my neck out and say I did but I can't say that I there isn't either and I think that's the same thing with any of this occult is that we're all in an area where we don't know and we don't understand and I, that's why I think people should be more open-minded about this and it just interests me to how people who are so adamant that they know everything about religion and people just won't stop and think well you know what I don't know mm -hmm. 
So when I tell you these stories, I can only tell you what I've experienced or what I know, and they may be true or they may not. And this is what has happened to me or happened to friends or I've seen, and that's the best I can do. Yeah. I feel like that's a good a good place to pause and think and, and really like internalize all of that because it kind of speaks to everything we were saying about I think a lot of people are afraid to admit that they believe in certain things because it it requires us to have a little humility and admit that we don't really know what yeah. we're doing <laughs> and we yeah. don't know what any of this is for or why mm-hmm. and any of that and that's actually okay. Mm-hmm. Well, it is. I mean, I think self-confidence is really important and a belief in yourself is important. I believe I have confidence in myself, but I think a lot of What's helped me, I ran a religion website at the Washington Post for seven or eight years, and so I studied religion very intensely for that time. I was an atheist, and I ended up not being an atheist after I'd done that study. But I think that's what's, what's helped me the most in all of the reading and all the studying and all the research I've done on the issue of religion and spirituality and the occult and all of that is that a sort of real comfort level with not knowing and not understanding. And, you know, so everybody is searching for meaning. The things that give my life meaning are the things that make me feel happy at the time. So I've found what is gives my life meaning. And it doesn't mean that you aren't going to suffer a lot, because I certainly have with my parents, both dying and Quinn's illnesses and my husband dying and being sick for so long. Yeah. That's all very valuable. It's a nice reminder that being stressed about, you know, certain little things are not necessarily what give my life meaning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was with my husband for 43 years, but he had this expression that used to make me crazy, which was when the history of the world is written, this is not going to be in it. I mean, he just didn't get upset by anything. You know, he went through Watergate. He was the editor in the newspaper at Watergate with Richard Nixon, you know, trying to destroy the paper. And now I'm in this phase of my life where I'm sort of thinking, when the history of the world is written, this is not going to be in there. So, I mean, if you can get to that place... Thank you so much for taking the time to walk us through everything. I feel like I learned a lot not only about Grey Garden specifically, but just life and and family. I'm going to need the name of your astrologer too, so we'll offline about that. (laughs) Caroline Casey. Love it. Caroline Casey. We'll look her up. Amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so, so much. Well, thank you. It was interesting. Fun to talk to you. Yeah, it was. Okay, bye. Okay, so that was great. After reading her book, I knew that she would be fun to talk to, but I'm like, that was especially fun. Alyssa, shall we debrief a bit? We shall. There's so much to unpack, but tell me what you thought first. Well, the one thing that surprised me was that she said she thinks the Edies don't haunt the house because they didn't want to return and were glad to get rid of it. And I think that maybe makes sense for little Edie, but I do think big Edie did really love the home. After all, she did refuse to leave it all her waking life, no matter what. Also, I loved when she brought up loving gossip and being a cancer, of course. Okay, yeah. The love of gossip as a cancer resonates with me big time. But 
I also thought the story she shared about the captain's ghost was interesting because it reminded me of that passage from Lois's book that you read in last week's episode about something she thought was a ghost clinging around in the yellow room. Is that right? Oh, right, right. And our gut was telling us that it was Tex Logan, right? Yeah. We thought that it was the spirit of the handyman who died in the kitchen. So from my research, I put together that the rumor of the sea captain probably isn't about an actual sea captain, even though little Edie did reference a sea captain too. I feel like it's probably a legend in the area because no one could link it to a historical figure back to that property. But my best guess would be that it's the person she felt was her true love, Julius, quote unquote, Cap, aka Captain Krug. He was the politician and their breakup was partly what drove her back to Grey Gardens in her 30s. So he wasn't like a legit sea captain, but because that's like part of his name, I kind of feel like maybe that was him and it was just a nickname, but perhaps somebody else did fall off a ladder. I know that the Cap Krug guy, he died in 1970 at 63. So that was just a few years before they filmed Grey Gardens. That is one too many captains for me to keep track of, but whether or not that one particular ghost story is true, it was definitely interesting to hear her perspective on the energy of the house. And I loved the way that she defined magic as more of an energy that a person or place exudes. Oh, same. And my jaw was also on the floor when she told us about her DC house ghost visitor that came at the same time as the cosplaying museum docent. I truly... I. I it honestly, I had a delayed reaction because I was like, what? <laughs> Such an unbelievable story. Also that she was chill about the intruder. I would not have been chill. Can you imagine how the lady who peeked in the window must have felt? I would have been mortified. No wonder she ran screaming. But yeah, that story was hilarious. And all of her stories were great. I'm really glad we got to talk to her. All right. Well, I guess it's time to close the chapter on Grey Gardens. Sadly, though, let's be real. I'm never closing it. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us where you get your podcasts so we can keep digging up more haunted house stories to share with all of you. We will see you next time in yet another house with some uninvited, but hopefully as fun as little lady house guests. Thanks for listening. 